Welcome to Tea for Two, the podcast for women in golf and the men who support them. With your host, Karen Harding. Welcome. Our guest today is a power for good in the world who has now extended that generosity to the world of golf. Bonnie Booserman has spent much of her life combining high-level business and philanthropy. She has contributed to a significant number of boards across the globe, in addition to a brilliant corporate career, which included over 20 years with Time Warner, 13 of them as Managing Director and Chair of Time Life Australia. But it is benevolence to others which is her passion, and to that end she has kindly served on 17 philanthropy boards in a range of roles and with a broad focus. As a Director of the Australian Golf Foundation, Bonnie is also the architect of the Australian Junior Girls Scholarship Program, a unique offering designed to encourage young girls into golf and to foster in them a lifelong love for the game. Bonnie herself was a latecomer to playing golf, but has since supported it with her considerable business acumen, strategic vision and marketing expertise, along with her trademark energy, passion and enthusiasm. Today, Bonnie shares with us elements of her work in philanthropy and her positive vision for the future of women and girls in golf. Bonnie, hello. Hey, how are you? Nice to to have this chat. Well, thank you for being here. Bonnie, philanthropists are a very special group of people, aren't they? What do you think galvanises them? Are they born or are they made? Well, in many cases, they're made. And I'll give you a theory that I have about it because it's born out of my experience. And that is that I came from a very underprivileged family of five children, good Catholic family. And, you know, I actually entered the world with not very much. And when I left home at the age of 18 years old, I actually didn't have enough except for dreams. And my dreams were that I wanted to really accomplish things one day. And I wanted to give back to people if I ever had the means to do that. And so I've worked my whole entire life at something. And it was only through sheer determination and absolute vision of what I wanted to become myself that I ended up at a very high level in a big U.S. corporation and spent 23 years at Time Warner. And I ended up in Australia. When I got here, I saw that I had the absolute opportunity to be able to give my business acumen, basically, to be able to help organizations raise more money uh, and find ways to uh, expand their their footprint. And um, so I started in 1984 when someone approached me and asked me if I would like to help out struggling young opera artists. Um, And I loved the opera. I was absolutely passionate about the opera. And that was the thing that clicked me into, wow, I can actually do this in my spare time, running a company and actually making a difference to these young artists. And it started from there. You've got a strong history in giving, having served on 17 philanthropy boards, still on six, and your commitment seems to have been in a broad range of areas. Does this reflect a diversity of your own interests or is it a recognition that giving is needed everywhere? Well, it's both. It's the fact that I'm a typical Gemini, and I say that because I'm so active, I bounce 50 balls in the air simultaneously. And and I've done that since I was a kid. Nothing was too much. Uh, nothing was a no. Yeah, sure, I can do this. Of course, I can do this. 
some things I was always passionate about that I said one day, if I had the opportunity, I'd give. Other things became presented to me. And suddenly I think, wow, I never realized about this organization, nor did I realize the needs that they basically had. So that's, so I'm being honest, that's how my giving has come to fruition. So it can either be something I'm completely passionate about, and that is golf, and we'll speak about it later, or it could be something that I've worked on for many years, like the Cochlear Implant Center for Deaf Children, or the Olympics, um, to giving money to put on big fundraisers so that we can raise money for the athletes. So it's things that people have an opinion of that they think there's enough money for that in reality, there isn't. And people need to go out and raise money for these causes. What was the aha moment for you to delve deeper into the charitable sector? It was only the year after I arrived in Sydney in 1983 that I was asked to speak at the first business women's conference in Australia called Women in Excellence. And I ended up speaking with Wendy McCarthy, who was deputy chairman of the ABC. Dame Leone Cromer was on a board of universities and a lady by the name of Jake Huey, who just won the Telstra Business Women of the Year for small business. That was transformative right there because in the audience were 300 people, which I think there were only nine men. And I think they thought we were going to burn our bras and you know protest back in 1984. But what happened was these amazing women came up to me and introduced themselves and basically said that they wanted to get to know me. They love my energy. They love my ideas of how to manage. So suddenly the charity opportunity came open. When Lady Fairfax walked up to me and said, I want to get to know you. I have this charity that I started raising money for struggling young opera artists. I know you mentioned that you love music. It's been a big part of your life. I'd love you to be part of my philanthropy fundraising. And that was it. Once I realized I could still run a big corporation and at the same time, I could devote time to something that was very important, not only for me musically, but for the world. I basically said yes. And I stuck with that one charity for 16 years and raised over $1.2 million. And some of that went to the Cochlear Implant Center for Deaf Children because we folded them in. And I wrote, I used to emcee these big fundraisers. And I wrote from someone who was born deaf to getting a cochlear implant to actually having a rainbow effect to actually hear one of the most beautiful sounds that anyone can make, which is an opera singer. And it was this rainbow effect that really enwrapped everyone. And what it did to me is it basically said to my soul and my spirit, God's given me a blessing that I have the capability of raising money and of organizing and starting things from scratch like I did with a lot of programs at at Time Life. So I basically thought, let me use these skills to be able to do this. I sit sometimes at the opera house seeing a singer singing in a lead role at the Sydney Opera House and know that I helped that singer and they never met me. And I don't have to meet them because I know everything that I did about their career that led to this moment. And philanthropists feel that way. They don't need their name and lights. They don't need awards. They just get an incredible sense of giving and loving in their hearts. Let's now segue over to golf, Bonnie. Tell us about your own entry into the game because you didn't come from a golfing family. In fact, you arrived rather late to the game, didn't you? I did. I was just knocking on the door of my 40th birthday. And I'll be perfectly frank, I always thought it was for guys 
lazy, big beer bellies, you know, you know, riding in a cart, not getting any exercise and thought, oh, this is not the sport for me after playing tennis, competitive squash, you name it, all these other really active sports, running, et cetera. And suddenly I'm seeing these different colleagues of mine going off and doing the lunch golf day thing and coming back and cheering about the fact they've done these deals. And I suddenly thought to myself, how did I get into this game? And how do I actually start with golf? <laughs> and here, here's the craziest story. Every six months, representing the South Pacific, I fly somewhere into Europe to meet up with the, the men who ran the different countries in the world for Time Life. And we always went to these really amazing, amazing places in different countries for our meetings. And one time they sent me a notification and said, we're going to uh, have our meeting in Glen Eagles in Scotland. So I had never heard of Glen Eagles. And I was so busy getting all my preparation together to be able to do the presentations that I had to do and get more money, you know, for different projects in the South Pacific that I didn't read anything. I didn't read the brochure. I was just flat out. And here I am sitting in Heathrow Airport about to catch a flight into Edinburgh when the guys were all flying in from different parts of the of Europe and the States. And we all meet and then we get fly into Scotland. I was actually riding the car with the president and the driver and two other guys. And we were driving a long way. And suddenly I looked out the window to the left and I looked out the window to the right. And I basically, never being a golfer, said to them, you know, it looks like we're driving through one continuous golf course. <laughs> so four men's heads turned and looked at me in this limo and said, well, Bonnie, of course, we're at Glen Eagles like this. And I went, well, of course, having no idea what they meant. And then drive up to this hallowed castle and walk in the front door in July, you know, with peat burning in the fireplaces and the first feathery on the wall in the first putters ever used. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is an incredible place. And so the, the president stands up, you know, first meeting. He says, all right, here's the schedule. Tomorrow morning, we're up at six, you know, breakfast. We're going to start our meeting at seven. We're going to meet all the way through to quarter of the one. I'm going to pre-order lunch. We're going to have every get everybody's sizes for their golf clubs and shoes. And we're going to be out on the course at 1.15. And I said, well, what about me? You know, Joe, I, I never picked up a golf club. And he said, oh, dear. He said, all right. He said, well, maybe you want to, you know, take some lessons while we go out and play because we were down there near the course. He said, you know, see that box there? That's called a starter's hut. And if you don't have a handicap, you can't tee off with us. And I said, oh, gee, but we always do sport for bonding. I mean, you know, I don't just don't want to go over to a driving range. And then he said, well, you're, you know, sorry, you're not allowed. And so I said, what if I meet you on the second hole? And I said, if I walk way around to the left and they don't see me and I get behind that big mountain down there and we're all good friends. And I said, oh, OK, so, you know, nine guys and me. And I got to that second hole and I asked him, so what number do I use? And they said, don't say number, you say what club? And so they all teed off and I watched them wiggle and put the ball on the tee and everything. And so it was my turn and they said, uh, use your three with, and then they took it out of the bags because I would have been fiddling around in there forever looking for it. And I hit the ball dead straight down the middle of the fairway, about 150 meters with a three wood, my first hit of my life. <laughs> and they said, oh yeah, okay, she's pulling our leg, you know, she probably wants to win the skins or something. What's this? You never hit a golf ball. And that was a light bulb that turned on in my head. And I said, I have got to take this game up. I have got to learn how to play this game. And I ended up, you know, sculling and 
chopping and still getting some good shots in the air with irons along the way. And after 17 holes, that was my turning point. I got back to Sydney and said, where do I go to find out how to hit a golf ball? And somebody said, have you ever heard of Alex Mercer's golf schools? And I said, no, but just give me the number. And that was the birth of me playing golf. And I became, as so many golfers do, a complete addict. Well, from that very modest beginning, you're now a director of the Australian Golf Foundation, which has the stated mission of providing support for programs, activities and events, encouraging participation in the game and promoting it as the game for life. The Australian Junior Girls Scholarship Program is under the umbrella of the AGF, but it's really the extension of a program that you started at your own club, Kalara, in Sydney, isn't it? Yes. So what prompted the idea and how well was it received at Kalara? Okay. What prompted the idea was, and I've been a member now of Kalara for 31 years since I picked it up, but I I went every year to um, the general manager and I said, you know, Kalara's now, this is 2018, is now 119 years old. I said, we've never had a junior girls, structured junior girls program. I said, so can we start one? And I said, I want to try to structure a girls program so that they have the opportunity of having a membership and being able to go out and play on the golf course after lessons. So every year I went to him for about five years. And then suddenly I said, the only way this is going to happen is what I'm doing with all these other boards and committees I'm helping in philanthropy. I'm going to start this. So I went in and I said to the GM, all right, I worked this out, figured out how how this can work and how I can afford it. So I said, what I want to pay for is I want to pay for five girls, five complete junior scholarships, 32 weeks of professional training. And I want a matching shirt and cap like a uniform. And I want to have our logos on it and everything. And I want it to say 2019 Kalara Junior Girls Scholarship Program. And also I want to do an induction program. I sat back when I was thinking this up and I said, if I was a 10-year-old, because I set the ages from 10 to 16, what would really excite me and what would really, you know, make me grow up if I had an opportunity like this at 10? And so I said, well, I want every girl that is interested to write a bio about themselves with a photograph and write a little story about their hobbies and their sports and then what golf means to them. And it can't be a complete beginner, but they have to have some experience at hitting the ball, practicing in the nets, maybe going out and playing with their grandfather, you know, at summer holiday, whatever. And so I want them to write a bio about themselves, and this is going to help them grow up. And I want to make it all really professional for the girls. So on induction day, I'm going to seat the five girls in a row. I'm going to have their parents sit in the back. I'm going to make a little speech about what I feel that they should get out of the program and what's important about them looking forward, saying, Listen, kids, when you get out in business after university, young guys could be earning the same amount of money as you sitting right next to you, say at Westpac Bank, and they go out with their clients and take them to golf and do deals. And you will be sitting there like a bunny and not not being able to play golf. I want you to have equal footing when you go into business. And I said, because this is a great tool in business to be able to do deals. So it started. It was a tremendous success. I have had men walking across fairways congratulating me about seeing finally for the first time young girls on the golf course. We had never had young girls on the golf course because you had to be a member, you know, at Kalara. So I now interviewed yesterday 10 girls for year four. That's how far down we are with the Kalara program. There's a graduation ceremony at the end. We have a barbecue and a celebration. The pros come who taught them. 
The parents are there. The kids are very proud that they went through 32 weeks of professional training. Every one of the kids every year gets their handicap and they go out and learn how to play in competition. And I have a very good success rate of the girls staying on and having their parents pay for their junior membership. And then I take the next five girls. I really like that the girls play on course as it creates interest in playing the game rather than just hitting balls. And the social connection along with the WhatsApp group chat is a great way to establish long-term friendships. Tell me about the national rollout of the program under the AGF, Bonnie. The chairman tracked me down and we met here in Sydney. And I said to him, I want to tell you about what I'm doing with junior girls. And I said, I know some statistics and they're scary about women's golf. Number one, the average age of the female golfer is nearly 64. Number two, it's now down to 80% men and 20% women. And number three, when I helped the ALPG, For years, we had between 50 and 55 pros competing all around the world in different circuits. Today, we have 18. And the only way you can change this problem is to get young girls staying with golf, coming up year after year, another group of young girls, another group of young girls. And you look maybe five or six years from now with maybe two or 3,000 girls, and this is going to transform golf in this country because women will come back to golf. And these young girls will never forget the opportunities they had as a young girl. And they too will want young girls coming up and their kids coming up through the ranks as well. And the Australian Golf Foundation wanted to follow and dovetail into the 2025 uh, strategy from Golf Australia, which was a great great strategy. Now, Now we're working on an even bigger strategy and women are definitely included. So they loved it. I joined the board nearly two years ago. One of the first things I did for the second board meeting is I wrote a 10-page proposal to launch a junior girls program last year. And I said, I'll raise the money. Don't worry that I said, I'm used to fundraising. And I said, I think I need a, a, I need a budget for $80,000 and that will be $2,000 a club. And that $2,000 a club will give them 24 weeks of professional training. The club will agree to a full free membership so the kids can get their training, go right on the course and play. And a lot of programs don't work because they give girls an hour lesson and they go back home to netball or ballet. The only way this works is if you give them their lessons and they are free to go out and play with each other. Girls love girls. They love to pal around. They go out and play with each other and have fun after school, maybe play four or five or six holes. And then they go out and start playing competition with each other or adults like me. I take the girls out on Sunday and play comp. Then it it will inculcate them into the excitement of playing golf. And that is exactly what it's done in 2021. What was the response in the first year, Bonnie? We ended up with 226 girls across the country. Every single state has got girls in the state. And the great thing about 2022 is I said, let's get up to 400 girls or 450. And myself and the chairman went to all the different states And we basically said, you got to have skin in the game. If you all contribute to this, um, you know, you'll take a better sense of responsibility for all these girls in your state. To give you an idea, last year, Victoria had four clubs, you know, and five girls per club is 20 girls. And this year they have 41 clubs. So in Victoria, they've taken it under their wing. And state by state, they all contributed. And then the Golf Managers Association of Australia They also contributed because I said to them, more women, more money, more happiness in your clubs. And then I went to the PGA 
and I went to Gavin Kirkman nearly a year ago and showed him the program. And he said to me, when he read this, he said, this is the, this is the most unbelievable program I've ever seen in my 35 years of golf. He said, it's so structured, it's so measured, quantitative, and you've got outcomes. He said, this is transformative. That's the word he used. He said, whatever you need for help, I'll help you. And of course, I didn't have to ask Karen Lund because I've been talking to Karen for years about this idea of doing something really big for junior girls across the country. And she said, that would be great if we ever could get this off the ground, not thinking we ever would. And then when I said to Karen, would you join the steering committee? And she joined it. And she's just been fabulous. The offshoot of that is philanthropy. So I was telling Karen, do you know any, uh, any other people who've said to you along your way that if you came up with any particular programs, they'd love to financially help? And she said, do you know, there is one woman. She's fabulous. I said, can I do a proposal to her and maybe, um, you know, meet, meet her in a Zoom meeting? You introduce us. And so she said, yeah, yeah, I can do that. She's really friendly, really nice. So what do we do? Um, I sent her a proposal, told her for every $10,000, you get five clubs, 25 girls. I said, it's very simple. And I was hoping to get $10,000. So we set up a Zoom meeting and this woman heard my pitch and it was very exciting. And so she, um, she said, um, do you know what, Bonnie? She said, in my heart, deep down, I've always wanted to support junior girls, and it's been very hard to find an avenue to be able to do this. She said, you've now made a deep vision and desire of mine in my heart come true. I will give you a lot of money. And then I burst into tears. And then she did. And I can't divulge because she's anonymous, but I can say it's more than $10,000. And that is philanthropy. You tap onto something that that is deep in your heart about where you want to make a difference. And there are people out there, and if you present it to them, they will be so happy to help. Of course, this woman and I have got to be pen pals now. That just does my heart so much happiness. You mentioned a few numbers in the first year of the national rollout. Just giving a bit of a breakdown for 2022, there's well in excess of the initially projected 400 girls and 134 clubs up from 37. That 134 clubs is made up of two in the ACT, 31 in New South Wales, four in the Northern Territory, 24 in Queensland, 13 in South Australia, 5 in Tasmania, as you noted, 41 in Victoria, and 14 in Western Australia. Now, these are spectacular indicators of growth. Having national support from the clubs at this level, and hopefully further as the years go by, is critical to the long-term success, isn't it? It is. We were astounded at the response across the country, and those numbers you're reading are reality. So if you if you take a look at those clubs and you multiply, say, 134 clubs times a minimum of six girls, those are the numbers we have right now. And those are the numbers we're working with. Is And the great thing, I've got to tell you, Karen, is that my own KPI personally, and I didn't know I could achieve it or not, was to have 50% of these clubs being rural or regional who never get a cent from anyone for anything. And 50% of those clubs you've just read out are rural and regional clubs. And they're now scrambling around to find girls. Some of them have to, the girls' parents got to travel maybe 15, 20 kilometers every week for the lesson. 
But what I'm finding is some of them even are arranging buses to gather them all up and to bring them for their lesson. So what I'm finding in the country areas is they'll make it happen because they want their young girls to have those opportunities. We've got six girls in Gove in the Northern Territory with an Aboriginal lady pro. And she's coming up with another six um, in 2022. And, you know, they have a little nine-hole golf course that I understand is fabulous. These are great milestones that we're making now for people, young girls in a place like, a little place like Gove in the Northern Territory, who never had the opportunity to be able to play golf. Mm, this is one of the other benefits of the program is, is that it is absolutely open to any girl, isn't it? And so we're talking about a very inclusive uh, program as well. It's beautifully simple in its design, isn't it? Looking at what a young girl wants rather than what we adults think they should have. Yes, yes. And I think that's probably one of the reasons it's resonated not only with the girls and the clubs but also with the sponsors. Yes, it has. And and the sponsor is really um, a very, he's a big believer in diversity and um, and so therefore he's he's very proud of, of the amount of women that work in his company, but he also is a great supporter of trying to urge young girls to get into STEM because his company, NextGen, is a tech company. Just moving off golf and back into business and philanthropy again, excited as you are by the potential for the Australian Junior Girls Scholarship Program, there is a charity that is currently grabbing your attention and your heart, isn't there? Would you like to tell us something about Maboba's Promise? Out of the blue, about eight weeks ago, a very close friend of mine, Caroline Jones, she basically called me up. She said, you know, um, have you heard that, that some orphans are going to be arriving from Kabul in the middle of that catastrophic chaos of the Americans and the, and the Australians departing? And they're orphans, and they were in an orphanage that was supported financially by a woman from Afghanistan who arrived here 25 years ago. And she actually, all her life, said that she was going to raise money and send it to Afghanistan to help these poor orphans who have absolutely nothing. And she's devoted her life to it. And I love the name of her website. It's called Mabobo's Promise. And her name is Mabobo. They've been trying to get some of these orphans out of uh, Kabul for years, but haven't been able to. But when this catastrophe happened, and there were over 200 at this stage orphans in Kabul, she managed to get visas for 13 of them. And so Caroline has been helping her over the years. And she said, we're going to have 10 young kids um, under the age of 16 suddenly arrive um, in a few days. They have no, they have the clothes on their back. They have no place to live. Um, and everybody's trying to scramble around to see if they can rent a property. Um, would you help? And I said, what else do they need? So here's something been presented to me out of the blue. And already I'm thinking laterally about not just money. Yes, I'm going to help out financially there. But what else do they need? Furniture? Do they need bedding? Do they need towels? Do they need clothes? Um, and um, money for food. There was nothing at that stage for um, these young children, eight girls and a boy, little boy at four. So we went into action and I called up somebody that I knew and said, you know, would you, you know, be interested in donating from furniture and, um, or raising money? I said, you know, can, can, you know, she was involved in Women is Super, so they're going to have a big fundraising to actually raise money for this, these orphans and it snowballed. 
Mabobas Promise is an outstanding charity and it would be lovely to see it garner further attention and support. The website for it is mabobaspromise.org, but the link will be in the show notes for those who are interested to follow up with that one. Thank you. Bonnie, can you tell us a little bit more about your work with Chief Executive Women? There's an organization that I was a founding member of in 1985 called Chief Executive Women. And there were just 16 of us. A woman called me when she read an article in a newspaper and she basically said, you know, there really isn't a professional business women's group in Australia. And we really have to have one because we have to foster business women in this country. She said, we need to network with each other. We need to help other women gain and get, get ahead in their lives as well. We need to help women's education. And so 16 of us got together um, in early 1985. And there are some notables such as Ida Buttrose and Carla Zapati and, um, and Helen Lynch from Westpac and Imelda Roach who run, ran Nutomedics and Barbara Kale, who was the lady that called all of us, who ran a publishing firm that published the first business women's magazine in Australia uh, back in the early 80s. And we had common purpose. We all sat around the table and we basically said, you know, there, we don't have other women to talk to. So the 16 of us started this business women's group. And we've had offshoots coming out of this business women's group, like the STEM committee. Like um, we ended up raising money, kept on putting on uh, seminars. And we raised money enough. In 1992, we sent our first woman away to get an MBA. Today, we have 245 scholarships that have happened in, in that period of time, um, all those years later, 36 years later. And these women have gone on to be CEOs, judges, barristers, uh, generals in armies. And we're up to 850 women across the country from humble beginnings. A particular focus for you within this organization is supporting nurses, isn't it? One thing I'm very passionate about, and there's several things, but this particular one is the nursing profession. And you might ask why. And because I spent a lot of time having many, many surgeries and other issues. And I met at least over this period of time about 250 nurses in my stays and talked to them a lot and basically realized bad pay, bad hours, no opportunity for advancement because we're, at that stage in 2018, we were going to be 85,000 nurses short in Australia. That's 2018. The numbers are horrific now. So I put together a scholarship proposal. I went to the, the uh, head of CEW and the committee and the board and basically said, this is what I would like to do. I would like to do a matching program with chief executive women. So we launched it in late 2018. And the response across the country was mind-boggling. It's the largest response we've had for any individual scholarship CEW has ever offered. We judged the first awards, and you know what these women said who are running these big companies who judged it? We had no idea. We had no idea how intelligent these women are. We had no idea they didn't have a chance for advancement. This is mind-boggling. We have got to support this in a big way. And then I ended up meeting Bronnie Taylor, who's the Minister for Women in New South Wales. And I met her at a dinner and she said, I wanted to meet you because I heard about this nursing scholarship. I said, oh, great. Yeah, I'm very proud of that. This was like a year and a half ago. And she said, I started out my career as a nurse. Oh, there you go. And we've now had three scholarship winners. The first winner um, runs the emergency center for rural North Shore pediatrics, 40 nurses. 
And I talked to her supervisor and he said, I think she could run Rural North Shore one day. There you go, number one. Number two, a woman in Perth. She's now just been promoted to be the head of uh, a committee that's going to make improvements for all nurses throughout the state. And then thirdly, last year, this particular year, the winner has been the head of a award in um, St. Vincent's in Melbourne who deals with all the COVID cases um, for the last two years and has about 40 nurses reporting to her at a young age. And on we go. All these women now are excited about advancement and bringing their women up through those ranks to help them advance and advance advance themselves. So this is how philanthropy multiplies and helps by these types of things. Well, when we talk about philanthropy being about giving, there's no other more giving profession, I don't think, than nursing, to be honest. I think the Chief Executive Women is a brilliant organisation. It's great to see women mentoring and supporting other women. Madeleine Albright would be very pleased, I think. Yes. <laughs> Bonnie, philanthropists are all about the giving, but they also receive something in return themselves, don't they? What I find with philanthropy is that um, not to say very wealthy people are not philanthropists. They are because they have a lot of money and they carve it away into trusts. And they then have a vehicle that they can donate money to different causes. But what I've found over the years is a lot of people with a really big heart in philanthropy, they actually um, came from humble means and they, they took that to wanting to pay it forward or giving back. And they're very generous with their time and they're very generous with whatever money they saved. So there's a diversity about people who actually become philanthropists. I think it's a bit of a lofty title to call myself a philanthropist. I always feel that I'm the sort of person who wants to make things better and I don't want to actually have any expectations I receive anything back. I don't want any awards. Um, I have no desire to seek awards. It's just that I know that if you give, you don't expect to receive, but in your heart, you receive tenfold. And, and that's a joyous feeling about seeing other people really happy and thriving and knowing that behind the scenes, it's somehow you've actually managed to make a little bit of this happen in their lives. It's often said, there's this expression that you can't be what you can't see, yet to be the first at anything you actually have to have been something that you haven't seen. What do you think women who have been firsts are possessed within themselves that enable them to achieve something that hadn't been achieved before? You know, that is an absolute brilliant question. I don't think I've ever been asked this before. But what, what they have in themselves is they have vision. They have, they're naturally born with vision. Everything that I do, I... I if I, I, if I do it in a small way, I always look to see how I can broaden this so that many people can benefit. And, and you have to have a passion. But the number one thing you have to have is a lot of energy and enthusiasm. The amount of hours, days, weeks, months that I've spent just on the Junior Girls Program, just at Kalara before I, I helped launch it nationally, is um, phenomenal. And But if you have energy and enthusiasm, the hours just might fly by. 
Well, Bonnie, it's been fantastic having you on Tea for Two today. I'm quite sure anyone who spends even five minutes in your company walks away inspired and energised. So thank you for joining us and letting us know more about the wonderful world of philanthropy and how it's working in golf as well as life. I just want to say that the thanks again to all the board of the Australian Golf Foundation. They've come behind this. They supported it 100%. They've given some of their own money, um, and including the, the chairman and his wife. So, um, And we've got a big future going forward, and we want to do lots more things with the Australian Golf Foundation, just supporting girls, but then going into bigger issues from a strategic point of view. Mm. Oh, I think the future looks fantastic for women and girls in golf. Thanks, Bonnie. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye. I hope you've enjoyed our conversation with Bonnie as much as I have. She's a dynamic force, isn't she? And it's wonderful to see that energy being directed towards good in the world and for the benefit of women in golf. If you've enjoyed this episode, please let fellow golfers know we're here either by word of mouth, sharing a link or leaving a favourable rating or review. The more people who come to the show, the more visible we can make the stories of women in golf and of the men who support them. If you'd like to have new episodes delivered completely free of charge to your phone as soon as they're available, you can hit the subscribe button next to the T for Two podcast on your phone podcast app. And if you have any questions or have someone in mind whose story you think might be interesting, please feel free to shoot me an email at hello at tfor2.com.au. T for Two is produced on the traditional country of the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation in Victoria and offers respect to their elders past, present and emerging. I'm really looking forward to catching up with you for our next Tea Time Together. Our next guest is also someone whose story you will enjoy, so look out for that one. Until then, have fun in golf. Thanks for listening to Tea for Two. To check out other episodes and to keep up to date with what's happening in women's golf, please head over to tfor2.com.au.